it is 100% capable of dealing with stuff that its users don't want to deal with, right? And, and, and I think that um, what I like about it is that the proof is always in the pudding because ultimately if the network over time does allow a controversial instance to be part of most of it, then that's a sign that that controversial instance isn't nearly that controversial. And so it, it prevents unrepresentative censoriousness, let's put it that way, uh, from dominating the rest of the conversation. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 8th, 2022. It's Election Day in the United States, so while you wait for the polls to close and results to come in, why not listen to a podcast about the other biggest story obsessing the political commentariat right now? I'm talking, of course, about Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and the billionaire's dramatic and erratic changes to the platform. In response to Musk's takeover, a great number of Twitter users have made the leap to Mastodon, a decentralized platform that offers a very different vision of what social media could look like. So what exactly is decentralized social media, and how does it work? Luckily, Lawfare Senior Editor Alan Rosenstein has a paper on just that, and he sat down with me to discuss for an episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. We were also joined by Kate Klonick, Associate Professor of Law at St. John's University, to hash out the many, many questions about content moderation and the future of the internet sparked by Musk's reign and the new popularity of Mastodon. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 8th. Decentralized social media and the great Twitter exodus. Alan, Kate, thank you for joining us on this very busy social media news day slash week slash month. We're recording on the afternoon of Monday, November 7th, which I feel I have to note because things have been changing so abruptly. Kate, can you bring us up to speed on where things stand on the great Elon Musk Twitter takeover? How much has the platform actually changed? Oh, I mean, I don't know that the platform has necessarily changed. So my prediction going like a month in, like for like the month out from like starting with his takeover was that if he did any small number of the things that he promised, that it would bring about like a an actually like imperceptible amount of change, like kind of over in our tiny little goldfish brains that of like, which we live on social media where we forget everything, but like it, the, it would like slowly be a frog in boiling water. And we'd really notice changes a month out in like the, in the, in the construction of the, the platform. But I do think that uh, the bigger things could be, and it looks like he's maybe staved off some of this for now is the layoffs could really impact the midterms. Um, and things like that. I still think that that could, could happen. But the main thing has just been that like, it's been just an incredible, incredible parade of insanity and incoherence from Musk around how he's running this company into the ground and a really decent public space into the like public private space into the ground. And I just think it's been I haven't been able to kind of take my eyes off of it. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, we'll have to, like Kate said, we'll have to wait and see what the actual structural changes are. I think that'll take some time. What to me has been so notable is just how quickly Musk has demolished the idea that he can be a responsible steward 
for this really important piece of the of the digital commons. You know, some of that is maybe because of his substantive views on this or that issue, but a lot of it is just the loose canon nature of what he's saying. And look, I, I've never been a, a particular Musk fanboy, but I've also never been a reflexive disliker of Elon Musk. I mean, I think that in his previous ventures, he has been, I think, undeniably quite successful. Um, I mean, building electric cars and going to space and to moon and to Mars are not trivial things. And, you know, managing those processes, I think, requires some amount of skill and talent. And so I was quite open-minded, frankly, to Musk taking over Twitter. But just the amateurishness with, with which he seems to be um, undertaking this, just the, the the kind of popping off these random tweets about things, the the complete lack of of recognition that, especially for a platform whose whole content is speech, the speech of the person who owns and completely controls it matters a lot. And I mean, there are lots of tweets that we could point to. To me, the one that really has just totally put the you know nail in the coffin of my um, hope for Twitter um, is Musk's just unbelievably inappropriate tweet about why everyone should vote for Republicans in the midterm, which again is fine for him to have a political opinion and it's fine for him even to be involved in politics. I mean, it's not like you know, Mark Zuckerberg isn't probably voting for and supporting the Democrats. But the idea that the the head of Twitter, especially now that it's a private company totally controlled by him, would tweet about how people should vote tomorrow is just is so unbelievably inappropriate if your goal, and this is his off-stated goal, is to create a, a public square. And so it's just stuff like that that makes me think that he is just fundamentally not a serious steward. Of, of this platform. And I think once that reputation is lost, it's, it's just so hard to, to regain it, which is why I think that, you know, even if Twitter survives this period, which I suspect it will, it just, it will never become the default chattering classes public square that it once was. Yeah. And I think it's worth underlining that not only are we uh, dealing with Musk's erratic and quite Trumpy in some ways tweets, but there's also real wreckage uh, at Twitter HQ. So I'm looking at reporting from Casey Newton's platformer in the New York Times, uh, spelling out that Musk gutted the entire ethical AI team. The communications department went from 90 people to two. The human rights team, that's a great thing to cut. Uh, accessibility, marketing, uh, happily trust and safety was only cut by 15%. But I have to say that that doesn't uh, fill me with with optimism. So not, none of this seems like a great way to run a social media platform going forward. And I'm certainly extremely conscious of the many, many ways that Twitter has arguably failed uh, in, in recent years as a social media platform. But you know, trying and failing seems quite different than just intentionally setting it on fire. <laughs> Is that fair? I mean, like, I just think like it's kind of for me from a legal perspective, this has always been so interesting to see how the different parts of my world, like the information studies people versus like the people who are just politics, you know, follow politics versus, you know, all of the people in my Twitter feed and that I'm good friends with, right. That my, my work intersects with, it was so interesting to see the different predictions. Like there was a whole bunch of people who were just like not lawyers who'd never taken a corporate law class that were kind of like, there's no way that this actually happens. This is just a stunt. And I was sitting there kind of like, oh no, this is like, a, you know, this is, this is actually, 
you know, this is actually could have could have teeth um, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, this is actually a fair, fairly serious thing that could have huge consequences for the platform. And then from a speech governance standpoint, I actually think, and I wrote a piece on this for the information and op-ed, but the exact opposite of Alan, which is just that I was like, I actually took a look at all of the texts that came out in discovery over in the Delaware Chancery Court and was just kind of like, looked at who he was talking to and looked at how he was talking about this stuff. And just the most serious conversation that he had was with, I forget the guy's name, Jason, Jason Kakakinis or something, the um, one of his other VC buddies. And it was it was like incoherent around how to run a speech platform. I mean, it was completely incoherent. And knowing both the business side and the user speech side, I just was kind of like, this is like, he's just showing us his ass. Like this is almost, you know, this is just, I mean, Charlie Warzel like had this incredible piece was like the, the tweet, like the text messages in discovery destroyed the, the myth of the tech genius. And I think that that was exactly correct. And more than that, it just destroyed my thoughts that there was any hope that this would be. So not, I mean, I'm a little surprised that he's continued to be, such an ass so publicly, but like, this is, it's, I'm not surprised that this, he is so bad at this. That part is, and Mike Masnick's piece, by the way, I have to like shut this up, but like, let me help you speed run content moderation of a platform is just like chef's kiss. And I feel like every piece of that is going to be coming true in like the next month and a half. Yeah, I definitely recommend uh, Mike Masnick's write up, and we'll we'll link it in the show notes for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it. Um, so let's then talk a little bit about alternatives to Twitter, the places where people are fleeing uh, from the the reign of the Mad King. Alan, there's been a lot of movement to this service called Mastodon. What exactly is that? So Mastodon, the I think simplest way to describe it is that it's Twitter if the underlying architecture was like email. So let me try to unpack what that means. So the way email works is you have a protocol, a set of rules by which people who want to use this internet application called email have to operate. And those rules are really about you know what an email has to look like, what sort of metadata it has to be, and how the different computers on the internet that deal with email talk to one another and route email so that my email can get to you. Now, the key thing about email for purposes of this analogy is that it is decentralized in the sense that there's no one email system. There's no one person, there's no one entity, there's no one computer that runs email. Email, like the web itself, is decentralized. There are lots of computers, in email's case, they're running software called an email server that use this protocol that we all agreed to at some point 30 or 40 years ago to communicate with each other. So let's say I am using a Google Gmail server and Kate is using a, I don't know, Microsoft Outlook server, or maybe she's using her own server, right? There are plenty of people who run their own servers. Um, And I try to send an email to Kate What's really happening is that I am sending an instruction to my email provider. That email provider, Google, is then figuring out who Kate's email provider is, sending a message to that provider, and then that provider uh, gives that information to Kate. 
And if someone wants to come up and set up a new email provider, they can just do that. And uh, as long as the providers can all talk to each other, and there are various complicated ways in which they do that, then you have a system in which everyone can communicate, but in a decentralized way. And so Mastodon takes that and applies it to Twitter. And I should say that what Mastodon is, it's just one application that's built on this underlying protocol. And it's the protocol that's really the really interesting part of this, or that that's the, the real innovation. So the protocol here is called ActivityPub. And it's, again, it's a set of rules for individuals to communicate in a social media-like way. And so it allows people to um, replicate basically any social media experience you can think of. So for Twitter, the main application is Mastodon, but there's a, a Facebook equivalent called Friendica. There's uh, an Instagram equivalent, a YouTube equivalent. There are all these equivalent uh, services that all sit on top of this protocol. Um, and the idea behind this protocol is that uh, the world is divided into different servers, and these servers are called instances. And so some of these instances, let's say in Mastodon's case, are really big in general purpose. So I've registered just kind of out of default on what is one of the main Mastodon instances called Mastodon.social. It happens to be run out of, um, I think, Germany, because that's where uh, Mastodon's founder, Eugene Rochko, is based. But there are other instances that are much smaller. They maybe have 1,000 or 500 or even 100 people, um, and maybe they're organized geographically or around a particular subject area. But from the perspective of the user, which instance you join doesn't limit necessarily who else you can talk to. Uh, just as, again, which email provider you sign up with doesn't limit who you can send an email to. So what's happening under the hood is that uh, when I log into my Mastodon account, I can see in a very standard social media timeline kind of way, all the posts by people that I follow, whether or not they are on my instance or on some other instance. And the benefit of that is that you get something that's close to, though it's not quite as user-friendly, but close to the seamlessness of a Twitter experience, but without having any one individual control what happens on the network, right? Eugene Rochko invented the application, but he doesn't actually really get to control how the network operates. Um, he doesn't get to control who gets to be an instance. So if uh, your instance stops being to your liking, or even lots of instances all try to censor some piece of information, that information cannot be entirely kicked off the system, right? That can just be held and hosted on another instance, right? Conversely, because each instance is controlled by its members, different instances can have different content moderation standards. So you can have some instances that moderate a lot, let's say much more than Twitter ever did, and some instances that don't moderate whatsoever. So what you end up uh, having is a system that, globally speaking, has less content moderation in the sense that it's not possible to permanently remove anything from the system overall. But locally, on an instance-by-instance -instance basis, can have much more, or at least much more tailored content moderation. Um, and so if your concern about Twitter is that you've taken this global public media or this global conversational communicative commons, and you've put it under the control of one person, right? Elon Musk, or frankly, whoever it was. I don't think it was ever a good thing that uh, Twitter had this outsized uh, influence on our discourse. Moving everything to Mastodon allows you to have more decentralization while still giving people control over what they can and cannot see. And the real question is, will Mastodon be able to work out its 
kinks and its usability issues quickly enough such that people who are fleeing from Twitter to Mastodon right now in, in droves, right there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people are, are, are joining right now, will have a good enough experience that they don't just give up uh, on this as some you know, idealistic tech utopian thing that unfortunately is too complicated for the normies. Yeah, so I just want to say there was a, a Mastodon, I believe they are called Toots, which I will try not to find funny, uh, <laughs> by a user uh, named Kiara who tooted. Uh, every Mastodon explanation is like, it's very simple. Your account is part of a kerflunk, and each kerflunk can talk to each other as part of a bumblert. At the moment, everybody in Flurgle can see your bloops, but only people in your kerflunk can park your nerves. <laughs> kind of I like just, email. I just want to say, th so this is totally true, right? And there's, look, it is a more complicated system. I mean, if you're going to decentralize and federate, it's going to be more complicated. That is part of it. But I do want to say, people are forgetting how weird Twitter was at the beginning. Like Twitter was, no, it was not so remotely weird. obvious, agree. right? Yeah. Figuring out what a tweet was and what is a retweet and what's a quote tweet. I mean, honestly, the years it took people to figure out when you're supposed to put a period in front of your tweet, when you're talking to someone so that it's a, a real message rather than a reply. I, I'm just, the point I'm trying to make is that all of these things have their learning curves. And um, I think that what we're seeing right now is no different than what we saw with Twitter 10 years ago, right? We've just all forgotten how weird Twitter was when it first started. Absolutely. And so I, I want to frame one more question to you and then Kate, I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts. So this idea of decentralization, of protocols, of what is sometimes called middleware, basically the, this concept that users should have more direct control over what their experience online is like and that it should be mediated more directly, less under the thumb of these kinds of you know, monstrosity-sized social media companies. This is an idea that has picked up a lot of steam in, in recent years, particularly among people who study content moderation and technology. I'm curious, Alan, as somebody who's part of that, what what is the appeal? And we'll, we'll get to the specifics of the um, mechanics of, of moderation and social media that, that might be beneficial. But why do you think we're seeing this kind of move toward decentralization now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I'm, I mean, I'm really curious for Kate's thoughts because, you know, I think she, she's the real, I think she's done some of the most interesting thinking on the, the issue of content moderation. For me, I think the, the original sin of content moderation is thinking that it can be done. I just don't think it's possible. I don't think that as, you as can Elon have, Musk is discovering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what is that wonderful that wonderful Verge piece that was published right after he uh, took over? Yes, yeah, welcome by, to hell. Yeah, by Nilay Patel. It's called "Welcome to Hell, it's Elon." A, and the first line is, "You fucked up real good, kiddo." It's a, it's a fabulous piece. Look, I I increasingly don't think that content moderation can be done. And what I mean by that is, I don't think you can have a system that is centrally controlled, right? So that there's one decision point. There's one content moderation policy. I don't think you can have a system where there's one centralized content moderation system where the system is large, right? So you're dealing with millions, maybe even billions of people and where people aren't incredibly mad about it all the time. I just, I just don't think you can do it because frankly, people are different. There's just a diversity of thoughts and opinions and values out there. Um, and so trying to centrally do really granular content moderation I mean, it's just inevitably going to anger a lot of people all of the time. And so I think the answer then has to be architectural. Like you have to develop a system that does two things. 
One, it makes global content moderation impossible, not as a matter of policy, as a matter of choice, but as a matter of architecture. So for example, you know, sometimes when I, I talk about Mastodon, people ask me, oh, so it's like Reddit, right? Because Reddit is divided into something that looks superficially like Mastodon instances. There are these subreddits and the subreddits have moderators and the moderators control what's on the subreddit. But the difference between something like Reddit and something like Mastodon is that the decentralization on Reddit is a matter of the choice of Reddit HQ. Um, and that means that at any moment, Reddit headquarters can reach into a subreddit and moderate a piece of content or a user or an entire subreddit, right? So this happened, for example, with, um, there was a subreddit, I mean, there have been lots of subreddits have been banned in this way, but one of the most notorious is, um, I think called the real Donald or the Donald. It was a Donald Trump fan subreddit and it became very, very toxic and people started complaining and it got to, the complaints got to a point and a lot of them were quite valid, um, that Reddit HQ said, we just, we can't be associated with this anymore. And because we have the ability to kick this subreddit off of our system, the longer we don't, the more associated we become with this speech, and therefore we feel like we have to act. Right? By contrast, if you design a system like, let's say, Mastodon or anything that really sits on the ActivityPub protocol, that as a matter of architecture, there is no central authority that can kick an instance off the network, though we can talk later about how really bad instances can de facto be separated from the rest of the network. If you have a system like that, then there's kind of no point in getting really mad about speech on the network you don't like because no one can do anything about it. Kind of like, you know, although there are lots of problems with email and there's spam and there's, you know, child exploitation material, there are real problems that people are trying to work through. We don't tend to talk about the email content moderation crisis. I think in part because people realize that it's pointless to talk about it because there's no one central email authority that can do anything about that. Now, if you combine that fact, right, that you have foreclosed as a matter of architecture, the idea of centralized content moderation, you combine that then with the ability to give users, either themselves or based on the instance that they choose, more granular ability to control what they see so that they're not constantly exposed to stuff that makes them miserable. Then I think you have the best of both worlds because you've diffused one set of debates, but you've still allowed people to feel the safety and security that they need to express themselves online. And so that's why I think that Mastodon is a really exciting idea. And that's why I, you know, I wrote this paper that I wrote long before I had any inkling that Twitter was going to be sold to Elon Musk. It's just that fortuitously, now is Mastodon's chance. And my real hope is just that Mastodon is ready um, for the invasion of the normies. So Kate, I'm curious for your thoughts. First, so many thoughts. So first of all, Alan, your paper on this is what introduced me and really explained the Fediverse to me. And I just, I think it's excellent. And I was just rereading it ahead of doing this um, this show today. And it was just so well-written and clear. So it really is worth um, reading um, to anyone who's interested in this. Alan does a great job of explaining it. But I, I want to like, so there's like a ton of different things. I want to split something. I want to like kind of complicate something you just said, kind of like, I want to thicken this description. You said you didn't think that content moderation should be done. I think that there are a bunch of different ways that we are improperly thinking about content moderation or that we, I think that content moderation shows us a way that we think about speech and speech regulation writ large in like a slightly different balance, like holding up like some type of prism to the light. And it just kind of like everything looks clear. And then you just tilt it slightly differently and you see that there's a spectrum. Um, and so one of the ways that I think this does this is that there is a difference between the desire of choosing what you see 
um, or what you can say on a given platform versus, and this is really key, choosing whether like how angry or how much you desire to choose what other people say and can what other people can say on the platform. And I think that no one, if like, if where you're going to get upset is like being, and this is what we've seen for the last six years, I think this is what rocketed content moderation into kind of the public, the public eye, is that basically that people have this huge desire to actually make all of these speech platforms battlegrounds for an what has always been a, like a fight that we've had, which is that like you want to control what other people say, what other people do. I mean, this is like literally what a lot of the law is, is deciding what it is that what is good behavior, or bad behavior or good actions or bad actions and what people can do and how we kind of evince that with like traditional concepts of liberty, et cetera. Not to make this too kind of like galaxy brain, but I really do think that this is kind of the big difference. If what you want is what you is the first thing, which is just like basically making people happy about what you see or what you can say. I think the federated verse does that. What it doesn't do any better than social media, centralized social media, is change what other people can say. And, you know, to your point, Alan, and let me like, I'll wrap this up quickly so that you can respond because I'm really interested in how you respond to this. There's like this decent, you know, you have this notion as you give the example of email. Um, which is like, okay, everyone can like Kate can or an Alan can each have their own ser- email servers and they'll all work. Right. That's absolutely true. But in the actual matter of fact of things, certain type like, like, like Gmail controls this huge subset of things. And then Gmail becomes to actually make your point about CSAM and other types of nefarious behavior. Gmail becomes this clearinghouse and this leverage point for for regulation around whether or not they're like auto scanning everything you like work through Gmail. So it's not that like, you know, so that you're basically if you send if I send an email to you that there might be like CSAM attached to it. Now see, you know, Gmail runs runs like photo DNA types of things in the background of their Google Drive and all these other things that surface whether or not people are sending that. That's not running on like if I had a private server. Um, But anyways, like my point is that it's like to a certain extent, the power, the the power runs downhill. There is going to be this kind of this, um, if people have the lowest friction points, they're going to go to those types of things. And then the power is going to accrue with those types of servers and those types of protocols. And so I don't understand how at a certain point this doesn't, just recapitulate itself and in some way. And then I'm promises in my last question, but this is like, what happens if Kiwi farms starts to exist on Mastodon, right? Like what if there is some type of re- where does the protocol go then? Like to make the comparison, like, is there some type of like, do we vote it out of the union? Like, is it kind of like Texas? Like if I just wanted like, what's the matter with Kansas? We just like vote Kansas off Mastodon type of thing. Um, Sorry, that was a bad joke about federated states of things, but like, but generally, like, I'm kind of curious, like, there does seem to be a lot of things that can happen here. Yeah, I mean, look, these are, these are all great questions. These are, these are the questions. And, you know, I want to just take two clarifying things first. The, The first is, we don't know the answers to these questions. And we don't know the answers to these questions, because this is still such a new 
form of technological speech organization, right? I mean, one of the kind of most important features of digital technology is that things that work, you know, for 10 people often don't work or work very differently for a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million. So a lot of it, we have to just wait and see how this scales and and see what sort of emergent properties come out of that. So I I just want to make that caveat. The other thing I want to say is I just want to clarify what I mean by decentralized, because although it, it is true that in one sense, centralization is a binary property, right? Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, they are centralized because there is Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, HQ that can do things um, across the whole network versus email and you know Mastodon and the HTTP uh, protocol, right? That we all use for web browsing. These are decentralized. In another sense, and maybe more relevant to the conversation we're going to have about the trade-offs and the pluses and minuses, the question of centralization is much more of degree because Kate, you're totally right people are not going to run their own instances because there's no reason to run your own instance. Um, it's actually not that hard. Um, there are already services now that will let you, that will do the instance running for you as long as you like give them a domain name. But again, there's kind of no point for most people to run their own instances um, because most people are just normal people and they have very standard kind of vanilla content moderation preferences. Um, and even if they differ, there are kind of like three or four or five different buckets of content moderation types that most people want. So naturally, you're going to have some instances get quite large. Um, and if you look right now, you can do this. You can go and you can look up the list of Mastodon instances. And you can sort them by the number of users. The, the top five or six or 10 Mastodon instances have something like 80% of the user base. So you, in, in other words, you get the standard sort of power law distribution of a few nodes in the network carry the the, the most of the traffic, right? And this is the same parallel distribution that you get with a lot of internet phenomena, right? And in the same way that, right, again, if you looked at the main email servers by number of users, right, you would see that a couple of servers dominate. But the difference between a couple of servers dominating and one server dominating is huge. And it's in that difference. And in particular, the ability of people to move from server to server when they're unhappy with what their server is doing that puts a limit on just how centralized the system can be. And so I think that goes, Kate, to answer your question of, won't this just inevitably recapitulate the winner takes all? You know, it'll recapitulate the idea that a few winners will take most, but there is still a big difference between that and the winner takes all that you see with, you know, all your other social networks. So, Kate, you've done a really nice job, as Elena said, setting up all of the many, many questions that exist around decentralized social media and the the Fediverse. And I do want to dig into those more. But before we do, Alan, give give us the pros column. I think we've we've touched on this here and there, but just walk us through, other than not being Twitter, what is the benefit of using a decentralized system like the Fediverse? Yeah, so I think I think there are, there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of benefits. Right. So um, first, it can hopefully diffuse some of the content moderation challenges that we see, because not everyone has to live under the same content moderation regime. Now, Kate is totally right. That doesn't address people whose primary concern is not about what they say or what they hear, but about what other people say or about what other people hear. You know, if if you really care about that, and there are you know bad reasons and good reasons to care about that, something like the Mastodon is not going to help you. But if really what you're concerned about is you just don't want to have a certain kind of experience or you want to have a certain kind of experience, having 
different instances offer different content moderation is really nice. Kind of just in the same way that having to give a kind of maybe silly, but I think pretty accurate example, having 30 restaurants, each of which does a good job with its own cuisine is better than having one giant thing called restaurant where there's just food. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the main, the main benefit. You know, another benefit again is, um, and this is especially true if you're kind of more on the sort of standard free speech side, like I am that, you know, and you get very nervous with the idea of any piece of content being you know, permanently removed from the network, unless it's like actually criminal, you know, having Mastodon where information can, you know, most information can usually stay, even if it ends up being kind of shunted to the the darker corners where not a lot of people will see it, uh, it can be, can be a benefit. Another benefit is that because of the way these instances work, people with super different views and in particular opposing views will not quite rub up against each other in the same way that they do on Twitter, right? Part of this again is because different instances have different cultures. Um, part of it is because at least so far, uh, Mastodon is nonprofit. It does not allow advertisements. And so that means that there isn't quite the same incentive to what in Silicon Valley is euphemistically called drive engagement, which is really a code word for make people as angry as humanly possible because that drives clicks. Uh, and that is what makes advertisers happy. So just from the demand side, uh, you get uh, less need for content moderation. I, I would say th those are those are some of kind of the main main uh, uh, advantages. I mean, also you're not under anyone's dictatorial rule, right? You, you don't answer to Elon Musk, which is nice. I will say that like all of this makes me all of and like what, how even some of the language that Alan just used to describe kind of the the benefits of decentralization like strikes me as like essentially kind of an Eleanor Ostrom type of managing of conflicting uses in a commons and governance, uh, like governance of a common space, um, which I think is actually, I'm increasingly convinced this is really the model to kind of reason through online speech and the public private mashup of the, of kind of, of the internet right now. So like, I just kind of wanted to flag that and say that, like, I think that one of the things that I think the Mastodon is, you're right, Alan, is like, is, is going to do well, is that it manages conflicting uses very well. Um, whereas something like there is, I mean, the best, you know, like I was just rewatching Caddyshack and I was like that, there's that, you know, there's the baby Ruth scene. And I feel like, I feel like that's what Elon, Elon Musk just pooped in the pool. Like no one wants to like, no one wants to be there. Everyone's fleeing and getting out, and like, you're, like you're gonna like have to ruin the entire pool to disinfect it again after all of this. And like, you know, maybe there won't be a pool at all. Maybe we can't have nice things. I don't know. I'm like doing a terrible job with this metaphor, but like this is like, but like that's exactly kind of what I think. This is exactly kind of what we're seeing with the problem of a completely private public space that manages the like a right-based, like right, like public free expression. Um, and so I think that there, I, you know, I'm actually on Mastodon now, Helen, and there's a guy named Eric Muller says the collapse of Twitter is a system breakdown and Mastodon and the Fediverse represents something different, a system change from for-profit big tech to nonprofit open source community-owned public spaces. And I feel like that's almost exactly what you're saying. It, I don't think it'll mean the end of Twitter, by the way, or private spaces for private big tech. I just think that it's going to maybe be a paradigm shift. And, and to be clear, no, I think that's great. And, and I, I, I think I think this is right. I mean, I think Eleanor Ostrom basically explains 98% of stuff that goes on on the internet. And so I am 
uh, I will be very, very happy to to invoke her as my patron saint uh, for for my thinking about Macedon uh, as well, because I think you're exactly right. Right, this is just an alternative way of dealing. This is an alternative way of dealing with this very difficult situation in which you have lots of people trying to use a common space in in different ways, and you have to just give them the ability to separate uh, a little bit. Something that the the Twitters and Facebooks and you know Instagrams of the world don't currently allow. I also you know don't think that this is the end of Twitter, um, and I think even Twitter realizes what the future is. I mean, one thing that's kind of ironic in this whole discussion is that um, I think just a few days, or maybe a week before Twitter uh, was bought by Elon Musk, it announced that this um, Blue Sky project, uh, which is a project that uh, Twitter has been the main funder for, though it does not control, it's an independent project, that the Blue Sky project is coming out with a its own protocol that essentially does what ActivityPub does. And the idea that Twitter had, and who knows whether this is still its plan uh, post-Musk, is that Twitter, once Blue Sky was built out, would be just another node, basically another instance on this larger Blue Sky uh, network. Now, again, I think Musk's takeover has put a lot of that into doubt. But I do think the future is not getting rid of Twitter or getting rid of Facebook just as the future is not getting rid of Gmail, which I happily use, even though, you know, it's corporate and scans my email and, you know, has all sorts of bad things associated with it. It's rather having different entities, whether they're nonprofits or companies, run their own servers that are all enmeshed with something that is kind of fundamentally, I don't want to say neutral, because technology is never neutral, um, but that does at least allow for all these alternative uses and pushing as many decisions as possible out to the to the edges and to the, to the users themselves. So let's go back to the difficulties with this kind of a decentralized system. And I, I think maybe a good place to start is this question that that Kate brought up of, you know, what what do you do with really objectionable content? So on Twitter, for example, because it's centralized, Twitter can just say, we don't want anybody to tweet Nazi content, or we, we don't want anybody to impersonate Elon Musk, and they can implement that by fiat. Maybe the implementation is better, maybe it's worse, but it can be done. On the Fediverse, you can't do that because of decentralization. I, I think, at least as of a few months ago, Trump's platform Truth Social uh, runs on Mastodon's program, and you know that there's nothing that Mastodon can do about that <laughs> because it's decentralized. So Alan, talk us through how you think through that difficulty. Is that a downside in your view? Yeah, so so I think it's useful to divide the world of objectionable content into two categories. So one category is the stuff that basically anyone who is remotely respectable thinks is objectionable. So the classic example here again is child exploitation material. Obviously, there is a constituency for CSAM, right? There are people who produce it and spread it and consume it. But really, no one out there who's, you know, no matter where they're on the political spectrum, is arguing for CSAM. So with stuff like that, um, the way to get rid of it is fairly straightforward because each instance has its own incentive to get rid of that. The instances can even share resources, let's say outsourcing to you know databases that do CSAM scanning. And you know if the instances can't do it or if there's a real outlier instance that wants to be criminal, then there are backstops, which is to say governments. Because remember, the internet ultimately exists within national jurisdictions and if an instance, you know, in America or somewhere else wants to run a child pornography ring, um, then I have no problem with that instance being or the, the the people who run that instance all being thrown into into jail. 
Um, the trickier issue is with objectionable content whose objectionableness is itself at issue. <laughs> so, uh, you know, let's take, for example, uh, far right extremism, right, which I think is what a lot of people are rightly concerned about. How does Mastodon deal with that? And, and the question, Quinta, you posed is interesting because even in the verbal formulation, uh, it kind of shows the different perspective you need to take. So you asked, well, how do you, right, presumably you here being a particular entity, uh, deal with the problem of Gab or Parler or Truth Social, right, if they are trafficking in hate speech and far right nonsense? And the answer is, well, you, singular, kind of can't do anything, but the network actually can respond if a critical mass of people on that network want to. And actually, um, Gab is a really nice example. So Gab, again, one of these far right social media sites, at some point, a few years ago, it switched to using Mastodon, basically a fork of Mastodon. All of this stuff is open source uh, because Mastodon is good technology. And the Mastodon network kind of freaked out because you had these people who a lot of them viewed as Nazis on this platform that was really supposed to be kind of warm and, and friendly. And at the time, Eugene Rochko, right, the founder of Mastodon, literally said, look, I designed the system so that there's nothing that I personally can do. But that doesn't mean that the network itself can't deal with that problem. So what happened, and this happened fairly quickly, and it happened most importantly in an organic bottom-up way, was that the major instances, right, the mastodon.social, like the, the thing that most people are on, they decided to block the Gab instance, which is to say they put some, you know, they put a filter basically, which the system allows, uh, so that um, if you were on mastodon.social or on one of the main instances, you could not interact with anyone who was on the Gab instance. Right. And now, if you didn't like that, if you were on Mastodon Social and you wanted to interact with the Gab instance, well, there were other instances that didn't have that policy. And so the network started organically reconfiguring itself based on not majority voting. That's not quite the right way of thinking about it, but basically people voting with their proverbial digital feet um, going to instances. And in fact, you could even have a second le level of, of organic regulation, where instances could even decide, we hate Gab so much that not only are we not going to talk to Gab, but we're not going to talk to anyone who talks to Gab. And you can imagine third order and fourth order and fifth order restrictions, right? Now, importantly, and what keeps a limit on this kind of censoriousness is that every instance that restricts its communication with other instances becomes in principle that much less useful to its users because now it's more limited. So there's this very complicated and again, impossible to coordinate and impossible to predict working out of the, the contradictions, as it were. Um, and at least in the case of Gab, what you ended up with was basically you had Gab in the corner, all talking basically to itself, and the rest of Mastodon. At some point, Gab actually, ultimately, it's Gab that pulled the final plug and decided to just uh, remove itself from the rest of the Fediverse entirely. Um, but before that, you had what I think is actually the, the best equilibrium, right? Which is that you took this very controversial community, you didn't get rid of them, you didn't infringe on their right to talk to each other, right? But you also didn't force them onto the rest of the community. And most importantly, this all happened organically. So there's no one, there's no one individual for anyone to be unhappy with and to say, you didn't represent my interests. The network just represented your interests. And so in this way, Mastodon kind of recapitulates the representativeness of whether it's democracy or the market, I mean, kind of pick your analogy. But the, the I think, bottom line point is it is 100% capable of dealing with stuff that its users don't want to deal with, right? And, and, and I think that um, what I like about it is that the proof is always in the pudding because ultimately, if the network 
over time does allow a controversial instance to be part of most of it, then that's a sign that that controversial instance isn't nearly that controversial. And so it, it prevents unrepresentative censoriousness, let's put it that way, uh, from dominating the rest of the conversation. So that's a that's a very happy story. I guess my concern is, let's say we're having a lot of people enter Mastodon from Twitter right now. What if there is, a, as part of that, a huge surge of far-right users that hop onto Mastodon from Twitter, and their view is that unrepresentative censoriousness includes, for example, you know, prohibitions on calling people racial slurs. Like, aren't, to some extent, aren't we still dependent on kind of the the goodwill, you might call it civic virtue, Alan, of the people who use Mastodon at the end of the day? I mean, we, we are, but I think that, and I think, I mean, let's just, let's just cut to the chase. I mean, I think you have to accept that if you're interested in free communication. I mean, that is the ultimate price of this. If you don't fundamentally believe in enough baseline civic virtue, then you just get rid of free speech. Um, and I'm not saying that as a gotcha, right? I'm saying that as a, this is the fundamental choice. Um, and I think Mastodon just clarifies that in a, in a really useful way. Now, to respond more concretely to your concern, this totally may happen, um, in which case you can imagine the Fediverse dividing essentially into two halves, right? The half that thinks racial epithets are okay and the half that does not think racial epithets are are okay. And there will probably be a couple of little bridge instances that live between uh, between the the two, and you know I think that is unfortunately the best that we can hope for in a world in which we can all see playing out in real time um, just how difficult centralized content moderation is. Oh man, I think that this is so interesting that you came where you came down on a civil virtue here because I feel like civil maybe this is part of like a larger thing that that we have a disagreement about, but I feel like civil virtue are like principles in like terms of like believing in process and process being where things cash out. And then I think that there is a whole different other set of questions about norms. And may, maybe we should just have like a, I, I really like, we didn't even get into like the geographic instances, right? Like the, like, which I find f- absolutely fascinating, which is that a lot of, there's a lot of like like local instances that are geographically proximate. And one of the things that I just keep thinking as you kind of, you keep saying this about how you're fascinated to see how this changes and you're fascinated to see what happens. And I'm fascinated too. I think this is incredible. I think you have a tiger by the tail here, Alan, in terms of a research agenda, but I think that they're like the time and scale issues are going to be enormous. Um, And you brought up before at like the head of the show that like, 10 years ago, Twitter was a weird little thing. And now Mastodon seems weird. And like how the norms coalesce around this space are interesting. But like, like, this is one of the main things that I think that actually like, so someone like David Kay, who does international law and, and content moderation stuff did when he came into this space about content moderation, he was like, Oh, well, we do have a whole set of norms about what should be like the baseline of stuff, which is the base, you know, which is essentially the UN has come up with all these norms about how to control free expression and all these other types of things, which is kind of, he came in and I think this is super interesting. Like the UN has this idea of international norms that drive which I think is key, but like essentially they impose them kind of top down, which I would say make them rules, but that's a bigger thing. But all of like all of Facebook's content moderation is so driven organically from the bottom up and is constantly, constantly changing. 
And there's no, it's organic. Like there's no way to predict it or predict what would happen. And even more so like the geographic communities that bump into each other, the cultural communities that bump into each other, the age demographic communities that bump into each other, education communities, racial, like, I mean, they're just on and on and on. I think that that drives the entire, there is absolutely no single set of norms that we can coalesce to even around process like civic virtue. I, the, look, the, these are these are all these are all great points, and I, I would just say I think two two things in response. The, the first is, and, and I mean, Kate and I are law professors, so, so you know, sorry, we're about to all go meta here, but I think part of it depends on what you think is a civic norm, because I totally agree with you. You're not going to get everyone to agree on process, but maybe you can get everyone to agree on the on this kind of meta norm that the way we deal with our disagreement about process is that we're all part of this really interesting technological decentralized experiment. Kind of in the same way that people don't necessarily agree on the price of something, but yeah, if you want totally to be in a market, agree with that. Yeah, you sort of like agree to deal with these issues via the via the market. The other thing that I would say is, you know, Kate, you, you mentioned something kind of quickly, but it's really important. So I'm going to draw it out, which is the question of scale. This to me is the ultimate question about Mastodon. I think the technology is solid. I think the UI concerns, although they're real, are fundamentally not that important uh, and will be sorted out. I think the weirdness of, you know, they're toots, not tweets, and they're this and not that. And what do you mean these instances? That's all just kind of the standard stuff that happens with any early adoption of a technology. I think the real question, and I just don't know the answer here, is what is going to happen when Mastodon is not 1 million active users a month, but 10 million? or 50 million, or 100 million, or, you know, what I kind of want it to be billions of users, right? Because it really can, I think, be a kind of global space in which, you know, Twitter or even Facebook never really could have been because they're centralized. How will you do the content moderation then? Facebook, and, you know, Kate, you know this much better than I do, right? But these companies, they they employ tens and tens of thousands of people, right? You know, poorly paid, uh, you know, Filipinos to sit and uh, review just the kind of most horrifying content so that, you know, we don't have to see it. How is that going to happen with a bunch of nonprofits? Now, maybe one possibility is that technology will come save us and artificial intelligence will get really good at filtering out the bad stuff. I mean, I think for things like CSAM, that can do a decent job. But man, the the recent history of you know, algorithmic uh, content moderation is not awesome. So that to me is is the question, right? Will they be able to figure out how to deal with the CSAM and the spam and the kind of miserable content when there are 10 million or 100 million people? If they can, I think this thing will take over the world. And if they can't, we're going to be right back to one of these centralized platforms in five years. Yeah. So this actually brings us back. And I, I studied the oversight board um, at great length at how Meta set that up. But there is another lesson here, Alan, which you could totally like, I think that you would, I'm interested in how this lines up, which is that there, there are governance structures that dictated the protocols that we all talk on um, and that are actually in place to kind of continue to, to, to dictate these terms. And so like, does this flow from this question? Is this going to lead to kind of a Fediverse or a platform protocol level kind of level of governance that's international? And I don't know how that necessarily gets around some of these questions still about geography and like pure kind of participatory democracy in this type of environment. 
So as we've been discussing, this really seems like kind of a trial by fire moment for decentralized social media. Obviously, it's been talked about for a long time, but this kind of mass migration or seemingly mass migration uh, to Mastodon from Twitter really seems like kind of a make or break situation. So Alan, what are you going to be looking at over the coming days, weeks, months to gauge whether the experiment is succeeding? Yeah, so I I think we're going to have to see what the most influential kind of Twitter users users do. Um, you know, like I don't think anyone with a million Twitter followers is about to jump ship immediately. That's a lot of built up you know social and digital capital. But if they create a Mastodon account and they start cross posting and they can gain even a tenth of the followers that they had on Twitter and they have them on Mastodon, you know, I think that will you know be a, a leading indicator. I think that a lot will depend on whether Elon calms down and takes a breath and uh, maybe stops tweeting for 24 hours and tries to huddle with whoever is advising him. And God, I hope there's someone uh, and thinks about an actual strategy that will help, right? That's the kind of push factor away from uh, from Twitter. And I think the final question thing I'm going to look for is um, just to see how this scales, right? So, you know, there are going to be trolls moving to Mastodon. There are going to be people trying to destroy it for for lols, uh, as they say. Um, and if Mastodon can sort of deal with that right now in the way that I think it successfully dealt with Gab a few years ago, uh, then that will suggest to me that there there kind of is is a is a method. And to that extent, I I think that um, it would probably behoove Mastodon to maybe develop its own infrastructure, its own governance infrastructure uh, out. You know, right now it's been kind of led by the sort of benevolent dictator, um, which has been fine when it was the small project, and and you know he should get to have an outsized influence in the thing that he created. But again, if it's ultimately going to become a broader thing, it has to invest in its own governance in a way that, you know, projects like Wikipedia have, and, and therefore have put themselves on not just a strong technological footing, but a strong so- social and governance footing. And Kate, I'm curious for your thoughts. So I just wanted to say that while you were talking, and we've been talking here, in fact, just 10 minutes ago to your to your hope about Elon some getting it under control, he tweeted, to be clear, my historical party affiliation has been independent with an actual voting history of entirely Democrat until this year, which is like, literally like, does that make anything better? Does that make it worse? It makes it worse. It does not make it better. So, I mean, yes, but that is like, this is, they're so bad. And I just like, I, so I have no hope for that. I have no hope. And I've also talked to a number of people at this point, and I don't take this for what you will, but I've talked to so many people who have worked adjacent to Musk over the years and like to a person, they fear him and find him insane. And so like, there's, I mean, I like at a certain point you hear those types of stories out in the, in the wild, but then when people are, we're very close to him say that enough times, like you're just kind of, that you really trust. You're like, okay, like that's actually true. Um, But to my point, like how will I know if this is succeeding? I don't think that we'll have any, this is a, like a, what is, what is succeeding? The Fediverse is succeeding. I think it'll be that um, more people are on it and that it gets more use. I think as it starts providing a viable alternative to the big tech for-profit platforms. But like, I, I think that the better question, and I just want to not, again, not to be like super meta and zooming out again. And I hate that they rebranded themselves meta because I just, it ruins every talking point I have. But like, is essentially that like the bigger question is how all of us in this world, in our in our communities, in like in space and time, are speaking with each other, and that is the public sphere. 
like full stop. And it exists in every space from like your grocery store to Twitter to now Mastodon and all of these different places. And like the real question is just that there is like an entire ecosystem that is basically getting healthier over time and offering people alternatives and things like that. So like, do I think that Mastodon is a good sign for the overall health of the public sphere? Yes, I think so. Do I think it also, I have no idea as with any type of like new playing with technology that this would not introduce a ton of different tools and a ton of different kinds of exploits into really nefarious types of areas of the internet that exist already and brings them all together semi in one space. Or I don't know how power doesn't recapitulate itself just on these platform, like on a platform like Mastodon eventually anyway. But until then, I think that this could be like, this is going to be a fun experiment to watch. And I'm, and I'm hopeful generally. All right. On that note, Kate, Alan, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's occasional series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, as well as our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.